Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 167. And I am recording here in a very steamy temperature reads 85 degrees apartment in Brooklyn right now. As it has been the case for the last few months, this is a remote recording. Of course, we're still in lockdown here in New York. I think the like the phase out, the phase one happens, I think, June 8th. So a little bit over a week from now. So we're quarantined. And my guest today called in from California. My guest is Jimmy Laval. He is a musician and a composer. He's been in bands like Swing Kids, The Locust, Crimson Curse, uh, The Album Leaf, and he composes music under the moniker The Album Leaf. Now, I know sometimes, you know, I do these, these music episodes and there's not like the travel or the cultural context to it. And so in that, in that way, you know, it's very selfish of me because I'm recording with people I've been listening to, you know, over half of my life. I think the first, you know, I, I mentioned this later, but I listened to the, I first heard the Locust when I was like 14, 15, I think at my friend Tim's house, who's actually been on here. Um, but, you know, he played in, he played in the Locust, he played in Swing Kids. These are bands that were very, very influential within the, the more chaotic um, subsection of the, the punk and hardcore scene. And then, you know, he played in a band called Tristeza and he plays in the album Leaf, which is this, you know, melodic uh, post-rock, um, atmospheric type of ambient type of music. It's these really incredible synth sounds and, and soundscapes. And to me, it actually works really well as as soundtrack kind of music. I mentioned this later, but, you know, it reminds me of driving in my car in the summers and like having this music on as it sort of played to the to the soundtrack of my life. But you also have to you have to sort of understand that if you weren't part of it and you you're listening as you know as, as someone who is a fan of other music or or whatever it is that this is this is something that reminds me very fondly and like very romantically of like th- these important sort of seminal moments in my life. You know, going to VFW halls and like Legion halls and things like that, and seeing bands that like we, me, uh, we being like the people in the music scene, like booked themselves and ourselves, and 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 played in the bands and were the fans of the bands, and it was very much a community that was built you now for us because we didn't feel that there was a community for us at the time. And it was really great and it was really cathartic. It was, you know, screaming our lungs out in basements, at house shows, like I said, at, at halls, at community centers, and things like that. And so for me, you know, this is so exciting for me. Even here in my almost like mid 30s, you know, a few episodes back, I had the Jacob Bannon on, who I've been listening to Converge since like my early teen days. Um, but that's the same, that's the same for Jimmy. He's, you know, over the years, like really been versatile in, in the types of, of music that he's played. And so even after this rambling introduction, 
I'm going to play a song called Within Dreams by the Album Leaf, which is one of my favorites by them. And then I'm going to play a song by Swing Kids called El Camino Car Crash. Just so you can sort of hear the, you know, the, the transformation in sound or the great variety of music that Jimmy's been involved with. Now, I have mentioned Bourdain all the time, over and over and over again, and you're probably sick of it. But he he did a really cool episode um, in the final season, and it was the Lower East Side. And I've been going back, and I don't know why, but the last couple of weeks, just like binging all of his stuff. And I had Kevin Sharkey on the, I had him over my apartment two nights ago, and he's someone who's been on the podcast twice. But he's also obviously a big Bourdain fan, and he's sort of my like travel guru type of guy, Kevin. Um, also being like a very close friend of mine. Um, but we we talked about Bourdain in this episode in, in specific. You know, it was in homage to the music he loved and the artists and a time and a place and an era that was both fucked up and like wonderfully magnificent to him, right? Because he's talking about like scoring heroin from these like burned out places in New York in the 70s and like very early 80s. But he also looks back very fondly and romantically at the, at the music and the sound and the aggression and the, the sort of like it was us type of thing. It was, it was ours. And that's how I feel when I look back at, at music. Like there were many places I didn't feel like I fit in at that time in my life. And but but this was a place. This was for me. This was for us. This was accepting. And this was. We talk about political punk in this episode, but it was like woke before that was a term. It was like our our rebellion, our resistance, our sound, our music. And so I'm, I feel quite fortunate that I got to sit down with Jimmy because I you know I love I love the album Leaf. I love. I love where he's gone on his career and music trajectory. And then I look back on the stuff he played at when he was a teen, like, you know, like I've just been saying over and over, like quite fondly. So again, the, the two songs to follow here are the album leaf and then, and then swing kids. And at the very least, like go check them out on Spotify or something, but then like go obviously buy stuff, please right now more than ever people need support and need some monetization of, of their art. So please go in and buy this stuff if what you hear is something that you're interested in. All right, and I'll also ask that you go to the show notes and you'll find links to Jimmy's stuff, but you'll also find a link to my Patreon account and that's where you can give monthly and you'll get some cool kickbacks. I just sent out uh, shirts to the people who are Patreon subscribers, but also stickers and postcards from around the world and things like that. Cool, I hope you enjoyed this one. I, I really enjoyed it myself. And uh, this first song to play again is The Album Leaf.
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, uh, thank you for trusting me. I know I'm not uh, like a, you know, from like music media or anything like that. So I appreciate you giving me time. Oh, yeah, of course. Cool, cool. No problem at all. Um, appreciate the interest. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if like you saw my page or anything, but you you can't tell by looking at me my age, but... Um, you know, I've been, I think probably I, I heard like, or I listened to the Locust when I, for the first time when I was like 14 or 15, uh, nice. which is more than half my life ago. So, um, you know, it's selfishly, I guess maybe sort of like the, the good thing that the podcast does is it, it puts stories out into the world, but selfishly I get to, you know, talk to people that, I'm like just vastly interested in and people that I'm, I'm a fan of, um, you know, and across projects, I, I really love this stuff that you've done. So, uh, this is, you know, this is just a treat for me. Cool. Awesome. That's, that's pretty rad. Cool. Are you, are you in San Diego right now? No, I live in LA. I've been here since, uh, 2013, like, oh no, 2011. <clears throat> oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, so quite a while now. Um, but before that I spent two years in Santa Cruz. How are you, you know, making out with everything that's going on right now? You know, it's, I mean, there's so much going on right now beyond even COVID. Right. Um, you know, it's really devastating and, and really tough to, to ignore, um, you know, the events of this week. Um, uh, um, in Minneapolis. You know, as you know, George Floyd and everything that's happening there, um, you know, to just add on top of the insanity of this COVID, the insanity of the president, the, you know, it's just, I don't know, man, it's, a, <laughs> it's pretty heavy. It's a pretty heavy week, you know, um, on top of that, just to go back into a heavy, you know, I don't know, I, I'm not sure what quarantine week that we my family is on, I think it's like 10 or something like that. Um, and with that said, like I have young kids as well. So, um, you know, it's kind of just like day by day, um, you know, teaching my homeschooling, our son, um, managing our three, you know, almost four year old daughters kind of emotions and, um, you know, happiness uh, being isolated. Um, you know, so it's just been, it's been a lot, you know, and every day is kind of, you know, sometimes you can kind of forget, sometimes you can just kind of, you know, we're lucky that we have, uh, you know, we're not in New York, for example, in a, in a small apartment or anything like that. You know, we live in Los Angeles with a house and a nice size house and nice size yard. And we, you know, we have some space to kind of, um, you know, just kind of, you know, change scenery a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been tough and, and it's been tough. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I come to these with notes, like I've got, you know, I, I do a fair amount of research before coming to them. So I didn't have this down there, but it just made me think of it. You know, what you, I wouldn't call what you do necessarily political, right? But you do come out of, you know, like a, a punk tradition, which is quite vocal about, 
um, you know, yeah. society's ills. And you do, you know, more than a, a regular person who's walking around, like you have more of a platform. Uh, I mean, I don't know, like, do, do you feel because of that, that you have any sort of responsibility to, I mean, I don't even know where you begin with what you address first, but like, do you feel any sort yeah. of responsibility for that? I, I do. I, I mean, and I struggle with it because, you know, at my core, I am not a, a very social media. I, I'm not, I'm not a strong, I don't have a strong presence. Um, and I don't really, you know, spend, I spend time on it, looking at it, but I'm not a poster or a sharer or anything like that. Um, and it's definitely hard when these kinds of, uh, you know, events and world, um, uh, you know, just, just when these, I don't know, just things that you just cannot ignore happen, you know, um, it's hard to, you know, sit there and, and be silent, I guess. And silent is also being complicit in the problem. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where to start really. Um, there's so many things happening and, Mm. you know, I don't know. It's um, it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough spot to be because uh, I, I remember like um, when Trump was elected and I, um, you know, uh, posted a photo of on album news page, a photo of my family um, marching in a, you know, uh, essentially with an anti-Trump rally. It wasn't the women's march or anything. That was just a massive anti-Trump rally um, in downtown Los Angeles. And I remember getting, you know, most of the comments were. Um, you know, I guess aligned with my beliefs or my political, you know, values and others weren't. And that's, that's also tough um, because, you know, you're, it's, you're, you're, you, part of the problem is an open dialogue, um, you know, um, and having an open dialogue. I, I mean, I have family that are Trump supporters and are Republicans and are gun activists and are, are gun, I mean, not gun activists, but like, you know, gun rights, pro-gun rights, you know, anti-abortion and, and just all this, you know, a lot of, a lot of things. And, and I feel like that, um, I feel a sense of responsibility to try to have dialogue with them about that. Um, but at the same time, they're also so closed off. So I get often just get frustrated. Um, and, and so with that said, like, it seems, you know, a lot like, uh, I don't know, it's tough. It's just tough to have that dialogue and tough to not get frustrated and tough to like be open and um, accepting of other people's views when I just feel like they're just so just, it just seems like so crystal clear to me that there's, it's really just about basic human values when it comes down to so many things that are, you know, in, in that are not, you know, that don't align with each other on both political sides Um, and, you know, quote unquote liberals or libs or whatever, you know, it's just all, I don't know. It's just, um, it's just tough, you know, um, to have those conversations and not be, um, uh, not get heated. Mm. 
Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like, I don't have the same sort of platform that you do, but it does, I don't know, you know, I, I work uh, outside of this with youth in, you know, what, you know, air quotes, like high needs districts, right? Like places that have uh, a disadvantaged socioeconomic status. So um, it, to see this stuff, it, it feels surreal. I, I sort of under, like, I sort of get to the point you're making where like across party lines or anything like that, like there are things that just feel right? Like you think the basic dignity of a human being? Exactly. Yeah. It's just like basic respect. It's just, <laughs> that's it, you know? And yeah, it's just crazy. It's just, that's yeah. what's really hard, you know, or just looks like someone, I don't know, in the media and like the, 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 you know, maybe it's ignorant of me to think that like Trump brought all this on, but Trump definitely brought light to all of this. And I'm sure it's like people that, you know, that have felt silenced, um, for, you know, through the quote on Obama years. Um, and now they have a, you know, feel a sense of agency, you know, just so that they can have a voice now and that it's protected and it's safe to come out. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure really what it is. And of course I've always known that there's just, you know, in my eyes, just, <laughs> just ass backwards, like politics, you know, people that are just, you know, sadly, I think it comes down to, you know, like xenophobia is, 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 comes down to isolation, really. I mean, totally. It's, I have family in Oklahoma that are so crazed about the border and immigration and people coming into the country. And I grew up in San Diego, a border kid crossing the border whenever, you know, back and forth. Um, and, you know, and it's strongly in California is, you know, majority is it, I mean, it's majority, um, Latino and I myself am. And I, you know, it's just like, it just seems like, what are you afraid of? I don't, you know, I don't know, like all of these things, it's just like, why do you care about a border wall? Why does them, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's all of this stuff that just doesn't make any sense to me. You're in Oklahoma, you're isolated. Um, I don't know. And it's like, you're what, it's just people that have not, I mean, I can't imagine like somebody who's like literally grows up in small town, you know, small town, middle America and only knows small town, middle America where, everything you are taught is just completely systemic from your isolated, you know, bunch. Um, and there's no outside exposure. Um, you know, school curriculum is totally, you know, white focused, white storytelling, um, you know, all of those things. And that's what they, that's what people know. And it's, it's up to, them to do their research outside of that should they want to, but for the most part, you kind of, you know, grow up with your surroundings. Case in point is like my family that's, 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 you know, Republican in middle America in Oklahoma. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern California and <laughs> they grew up there. We spent a ton of time together. My you know, obviously my uncle is my mother's brother. 
and they have completely different political views and we have completely different political views. And it's like, how, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's just a sense of upbringing and, and, and things that are just kind of placed, put in place at a young age. You know, it's, it's taught, it's taught to be, to have certain views, you know, uh, it's just, I don't know. We've got heavy quick. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I think, and, and I'll, I'll transition back to, to music in a second, but like, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, you've, you've traveled the world, so I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but like I fell in love with Southeast Asia and like, I really fell in love with the country of Vietnam. And, you know, this is, this is a place where, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an eighties baby, you know, my, my family lived through Vietnam. Like I have family members that, uh, fought in Vietnam and that seems even up until like the 2000s for people who haven't been there, like, oh, wow, that's going to be such a, a scary place. But it's a place that like we indiscriminately bombed and ruined. And you see, you see the long lasting effects of that when you're in like Saigon and there's someone in the streets who stepped on a landmine in freaking 2015 and has no legs now. Um, right. But right. has welcomed me with open arms and curiosity and hospitality Whereas people like my, you know, from my parents' generation might have looked at it with like such great fear. And it's like, yeah, how, like, I, di- I didn't create this saying, but it's like, how could you ever hate someone that you've, you've like broken bread with, that you've sat down to eat with? So, right. yeah, that, right. that, that isolation and lack of exposure is really like, I think, the key component in that, you know, xenophobia and hate. Um, yeah, there's also there's also um, there's a recent documentary or no, there's a recent narrative film. Um, speaking of Vietnam, there's a recent film that was made from the other side, uh, or it was made in the in the, in the in the eye of you know the Vietnamese, um, the people that were you know kind of just um, displaced and obviously you know everything that happened um, during the war with the you know, with the States coming in and it's, and I forget what the movie is called, but I just, just saw what it was. Um, there was an Asian American film, um, series that just aired on PBS that actually my wife, um, um, produced, uh, two episodes for, Oh wow! and watching it, watching it. Um, there was this, I, I'm blanking on it, but there's a basically, yeah, it's a, it's a narrative film that was made in the, in the, you know, from the, from the point of view of the Vietnamese, um, during the, during, during the war and kind of how displaced and, and, you know, what everything that happened with them. So, wow. um, which I feel like those things are important. You know, we only know one side of so many stories, you know, we only know the, the story of the, of, 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 of the world is, you know, told in, you know, the, British conquering this and the, you know, just, it's like, it's like a totally European colonization story of history that we know. We don't know the rats. We don't know the indigenous. We don't know the, you know, all of those things, which I feel like is, is part of the problem too. You know, that's like the only, it's all, all, everything is told in all of history dating all the way back to whenever is told with a white lens, you know? Yeah. This it's, it's, a weird thing I've had to grapple with working in education because when I came out of college, I was like, oh, you know, like, um, you know, 22 and educated by Howard's in, I'm going to tell the story of the other. And then it's like, oh yeah, the system right. and the state tests and all that don't let you do that. But, um, right. Right. Well, 
maybe to, to connect it back and, and I'll get to things sort of as best as possible chronologically in a minute, but you're in a unique position in that you are an artist and, and really like a performance artist during a pandemic. And the way that artists and musicians now are interfacing with like the consumers and the fans is, is far different. Um, I know you, you've done a bit of stuff and, and maybe the, the format for that type of thing maybe better suits like a single person with a guitar. I, I don't know. But how have you, how have you felt, uh, you know, interfacing people with, you know, your fans in, in such a new way? Um, you know, I haven't gone, I haven't started that side yet. Um, I haven't started live, live streaming basically. Um, I haven't started that yet, which I'm going to do. Um, and I'm just basically, there's, I, it's kind of funny that like this happened and it kind of pushed a lot of like, um, ideas and, um, um, release plans and, and things that I wanted to do in place. Um, and so I kind of had like a sense of urgency to like start releasing a bunch of music and start getting things out that I've been sitting on and start, you know, um, just kind of going down this path of getting things together, excuse me. And, um, and live streaming and, and just, you know, getting, just jumping on the thing and, 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 and getting it going. Um, so, but I'm also in a weird place where I have like a lot of kind of, um, uh, let's say it was similar to like, I don't know if you remember when Prince like couldn't get his publishing and he couldn't, um, and he had to change his name. Um, uh, you know, something like to that extent where he was like a little bit of his hands were tied as far as like, uh, a situation. So that's kind of what I was in for a little while where I had to like get out of that situation, um, in order to kind of like be, you know, free. And then also, so then you, co then you coincide that with, um, you know, wanting to like get into the live streaming platform in the live streaming world um, and start performing um, because this is honestly probably the most convenient situation um, that I could probably have to, 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 to perform <laughs> is to do it from the comfortable, you know, from the, from the, from the, my studio, you know, um, in the comfortable, you know, the, in my own home. And, um, and uh, I guess I get a little long-winded version is that like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be releasing new music and it's to, to kind of to be TBD as to when it exactly is coming out. But I wanted to co I wanted to start doing live performances when the new music comes out. So now I'm kind of feeling a little bit of my hands are tied, but then I'm starting to get the, uh, the, the bug of just like, I just want to, I, I, I often like, I get, uh, I get really, uh, um, frustrated with the game of, of music and what you're in the rules and like what you're supposed to do. And you're supposed to release this. And then because you release this, then you perform. And if you can't perform unless you release this and you can't go on tour unless you have a new record out or all of these like kind of rules that are in place and you can't, you know, just release songs without a, you know, because you want to. And like, there's just all of these kind of like kind of old traditional rules in place. Um, unsaid rules really, you know, that like, um, I feel are very limiting and I will, I just want to get away from all of that, just do things when I want to. But then my manager at the same time, you know, she often just like kind of <laughs> tells me to cool my jets and slow down and <laughs> stop doing things. And, you know, let's like set it up right and, and, and have things happen in the right way and like get all the, you know, 
parts and pieces in place and do it right rather than rush things and have them go unnoticed, um, which has happened before, you know, when I just rush things and put something out and I have nothing behind it. And then it does go unnoticed and that kind of kills my drive at the same time. Cause then that, that starts to like wear on me of like, I should have just waited or, you know, I don't know. So the long story, <laughs> which I just told you is that I will be live performing um, you know, live streaming very soon. Gotcha. I think maybe, I don't know. I thought I had seen something. I guess it was more of like a gear conversation or something like that. Oh, um, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, just yesterday I just did, um, okay. I've been able to do some of those, like some Instagram live conversations and some, um, you know, yesterday I did a session with universal audio, just kind of like hanging out, playing with one of their new, um, virtual instruments that they made. It was a new Moog simulator that just sounds absolutely pristine and great. And, you know, I just kind of like downloaded it, opened it for the first time and just explored it and dealt and dove into it on camera, um, with them. So I have those things, yes, available, but I do want on my own to start just, you know, it'd be cool if I was just like, all right, Friday, 4 PM, I'm going to play, you know, that way everybody can catch it and it's all there. And I felt some sense of urgency because of the, you know, being under quarantine and everyone's kind of at home, but now everything is also prematurely opening back up. Um, so I feel like we might've, I might've missed that window, but because everything is prematurely opening back up, that's probably going to mean that I'll have another window when we're all, you know, having to be on lockdown again because everybody wants to get a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you bring up something interesting in there and it sort of connects back to what I was saying, like in the very beginning in that, you know, I've been listening for a very long time. Um, and that, that probably starts, God, I, I, I think the first, and I'm like leaving my own timeline here and what I thought I'd, how I'd do this. But I think the first like album leaf record I heard was, um, the Seal Beach EP. Uh-huh. And you know that goes. That's, that, a, that's a change for me. That 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 was a shift in my in my creation. That record. Yeah, and that, that's sorted to my point, Jimmy. So so that goes back a ways, right? And you know we're talking twenty plus years just of making music under the album leaf. Um, right. So I wonder, like, do you? put pressure on yourself either like in terms of sales or like pressure to evolve the sound because that's a longevity that you know very few bands and artists really get um like like how hard are you on yourself to i don't know keep keep things different or like i said like to evolve or even to like i I need to hit this certain amount of sales or there's label pressure that kind of stuff um I mean, first of all, I'm very, very lucky, very fortunate, very, um, you know, thankful that I've, that I have had a 20 plus year career under the same name making music and people still care. Um, that's incredible, especially at my level where I'm not like, you know, I'm not playing to thousands of people a night. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm by no means uh, an arena artist or famous or anything like that. You know, I'm just, I'm very, I feel very fortunate and very lucky for my position. Um, and I think when I was younger, 
when I was younger, I didn't care. Um, you know, I had my first record, my second record. I don't think I cared in a safe place. I don't think I cared. Um, Seal Beach, I didn't care. Um, you know, I felt like back then, I can't remember how old I, how old was I when I made in a safe place? I think it was 26 or something like that. Um, I think it came out when I was 20, came out 2004. So it was 26. Um, I think born in 78. I have no idea how old I was in 2004. Um, <laughs> I was 24. Whatever. Anyways, um, my point is, is that I feel like I went through both. Like I went through, like when I was younger, I kind of didn't really care. I kind of like felt like I was having a natural progression just on my own. Um, and I think when I made A Course of Storytellers in 2010, or when I made it Into the Blue again is when I started to care. My second record that, you know, or not my second, but my official fourth record, um, but kind of my second record for Sub Pop. And that started to make me feel a little sense of like, uh, you know, holding it, holding myself under, you know, some sense some, some umbrella of, of, you know, of, uh, man, my words are just totally not there today. Um, I had like a little, you know, feeling of pressure, like putting out something that was solid and great and was like yeah. different and was a progression from the last and production had to be better and my beats had to be better. And my, you know, my songs had to be better and just all of those things. And um, I started to kind of, think that. And in 2010 um, is when I did a course of storytellers. And that one, again, like I wanted to like, you know, just do it better, the same kind of thing um, and just kind of get better. I don't know. You know, I was, I was definitely conscious in trying to make a better record. Um, and then I kind of fell into a funny time period throughout post course of storytellers. I felt like it was a new band from, from that point. Um, you know, the band's been around or I've been making music as the album for so long. There's been so many kind of, a lot of different, uh, kind of iterations and, 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 uh, cycles. Um, and, you know, pre, pre chorus of storytellers was one cycle post chorus of storytellers has been another cycle. And, and then even post between waves for me has been a new cycle, like from that record till now, um, which was 2016. Um, so I made like, after a course of storytellers, I did an EP like with the current band that was playing with me, um, the current players. And that was called forward return. And I was really proud of that EP. And I kind of felt like it was just like the first time I just recorded it, my, well, since one day I'll be on time, I guess, but since I just recorded it myself, just like, in my studio, didn't really, you know, didn't really care about the, having the most, you know, insane drum sound or just like the best production or anything like that. I just kind of did it um, and put it out. And then that was a record that I self-released, didn't really do press. I did do, I had a short little press run, um, but it basically went unnoticed. And um, that was kind of a bummer to me, you know, we went on tour and the tour was, was fine, but it wasn't as good as, you know, the chorus of storytellers tour, which was kind of like still, still my peak, I guess, um, as far as like kind of drawing crowds, I guess, um, you know, of that size. And that was back in 2010. So it was almost 10 years ago. Um, and, um, after that, I kind of fell then into, um, I had, you know, uh, started doing film scoring, um, 
time period. So then that kind of entered my life. And, and I think by the time I did, by the time, uh, I can't remember how many films I had done by 2016. Anyways, that just kind of like entered like a different kind of musical outlet for me. Um, so that got like, you know, film scoring kind of like started to become really like something I was really into and really kind of like focused on and really interested in, um, but didn't really know how to do it. And just like still don't really feel like I really know how to do it, but I'm just, you know, I do it. Um, and, and I, I'm lucky to work with people. Um, and I just do what feels natural to me, um, really, you know, with it, but yeah, um, I'm definitely not one to like make, you know, if you, if you want to like a, a uh, man, like trying to think of an example. If you want like a, an action film or something like that, like I'm not necessarily the guy who's just going to like fake it and make you some action music or right. something like that. You know what I mean? Like I like to, I do what I do naturally and I don't want to, you know, I don't really, I push myself within that umbrella, but I'm not going to like, you know, stretch to be, to do something that's just not like from, from me, you know? Um, and that kind of just goes in general, like across everything that I do. It's like, I don't, I push myself individually, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I like to just evolve on what I'm doing. And I think now since I have like, I don't know, I feel like I kind of got like hit by a couple, <laughs> I got punched a little bit, you know, I took some punches over the years just with kind of like expectations of album leaf and, and react and, you know, compared to realities. And I feel like that's humbled me. Mm. Um, and because of that, I now feel like I'm kind of creating and making the best music that I've been making, um, you know, that I'm really proud of because I feel like it's just, it's just coming from me without really like trying to prove anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I've already kind of been there. I've already, I guess, proved what I've done by my, you know, 20 plus year catalog of music that I've been a part of. Um, so now I just feel like I'm just, making music and in ways that are just, it's just exciting and natural to me. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot in there, Jimmy, that I'm going to revisit, uh, because I'm curious. (laughs) I'm I'm rambling. No, 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 it's great. (laughs) But there's a lot in there that I'm curious about, but I'm conscious of the fact that there are people who are listening because it's your name and they're fans of your music. And then there's people who are listening because they listen to this podcast and they're not necessarily, uh, within that world and in music and like it's various subgenres. So I'll try to like speak in layman's terms as much as possible. But um, I had someone on the podcast in February of 2019 and her name is Margaret Nee. And she's, she's like cataloging and creating sort of like a database of the San Diego punk scene because she felt it was oh, okay. like largely overshadowed by LA and it didn't get enough credit. And we talked and like I had mentioned 3-1-G and, and she wasn't really certain. Um, so we're talking more. Uh, oh, wow. She didn't know about that? No. So I guess really what, if it makes sense, like we're talking more like traditional, you know, like there's there's an 80s sound to like 80s punk bands or there's like a, a youth crew sound to like youth crew hardcore bands. Um, uh-huh. and, and that's sort of like how I'm leading up to this question, you know. 
and, and I'll start with I'll start with the locust, right? Like you come up to this thing, and and, and I'm so I don't know. You can get lost in the weeds with like subgenres or like describing bands, but like you come up to this thing that that I heard for the first first time when I was like like I said before, like when I was 14. And it's just, it's chaos. It's, you know, it's noise, it's grind, it's whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm very curious about, like, your entry into the world of hardcore and punk music and um, whether, like, when performing in The Locust, if, if, if the intention was, like, let's burn this shit down and make a new sound or if that's just something that happened from like a bunch of like nihilistic kids playing music together. There's, there's a lot within that, but hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let's see, like my discovery, I guess my discovery of music, um, and specifically that scene was, so I was in, um, probably, I think in ninth grade, um, so I could go back just a little bit, like through middle school is when I started to discover um, two very different things. And one thing that I started to discover was uh, like Tribe Called Quest and, um, you know, Leaders of the New School and Farside and, you know, um, Diggable Planets and stuff like that. Um, but coincidentally, at the same time, I was also discovering, you know, like Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, you know, this whole kind of, you know, juxtaposition of both things, but they were all kind of like, you know, um, Nevermind and Low End Theory um, came out on the same day in 1991. And so like that couldn't, like I was in the middle of both of those. Um, so that was all, uh, you know, that was my middle school. And I was in the band and orchestra at the same, uh, I was in, I, I grew up a band and orchestra kid. Um, when I went to high school, uh, and I also grew up on classic rock too. And I was like, that was what was on in my house when I was, uh, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up on like, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and Led Zeppelin and, you know, three dog night and, uh, 10 CC. And, you know, like, like those Pink Floyd and like all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so by the time I got to, and I was, I was a drummer, um, in the, in the, in the band and orchestra, um, by the time I was in eighth grade. And that was kind of when like my interest started to like, to do something that wasn't, um, cause I basically grew up playing violin and clarinet. Um, and then in sixth grade, I basically like discovered the drum line and the drum section of a band under the orchestra. And I was like, that is cool. I want to do that. Um, and then by the time I was in eighth grade, I transitioned and I was over to, you know, to the, to the drum section. Um, and there's a reason why I'm saying, telling it, telling the story in this way, because I understand maybe it sounds off track, but, um, when I got to high school in ninth grade, I was a, I was, I was like recruited by the high school I went to for, because of my drumming. Um, so I was the freshman on a all senior snare line and the snare line is kind of like in, in band orchestra. Like that's like the top, like when you're, when you're snare drum, you know, center snare drum is, is the top person of the whole drum section. Um, and they're, you know, drum captain and they're in control and of the section They're you know, they're, they're, they're the one in charge. And so I was a freshman on all senior, um, drum line, um, on snare line. And, um, the drum section is a bunch of <laughs> just like mischievous, like, you know, 
peeps. Like they were, they're just like, they're, they're like the, the oddballs and the, you know, of the, of the band. Um, they're the guys that are like, you know, and, and they're like the ones that are like smoking weed and, and like listening to like death metal and, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. So when I got to ninth grade, I kind of like got, you know, introduced to all of that. Like even like death metal bands, like, you know, Sepultura and, you know, skinny puppy, like early goth and, you know, just stuff like that. They're like, I started to discover those things um be aside and like stuff like that um from the drum from the drums from this particular guy in the drum line that was like a good buddy of mine and he was a 10th grader and you know whatever and i learned a lot of stuff from that um and i didn't really love it you know i wasn't really like totally into like that kind of music you know um but because of that it kind of like i started dating someone in my sophomore year and she is the one who introduced me to fugazi um, and from discovering Fugazi, I think is when my world kind of like opened up and I, that book just got open and I started just going further and further down that rabbit hole. So then that going, you know, getting back to Fugazi and like right to spring and minor threat and, you know, things like that. Um, Slowly then that got me into local music and local music scene for me at that time um, was a lot of San Diego bands that were kind of, I guess it was like the early days of indie rock, really, you know. So um, I was never into like straight edge hardcore, like Gorilla Biscuits and like the kind of the early stuff, like Chain of Strength and, and Strife and stuff like that. I just did not, you know, I didn't, I, it just wasn't my thing. None of that stuff was. Um but I started discovering other bands in San Diego, um, you know, like through my pilot and a minor forest and, um, a miniature and, you know, kind of a lot of like things, but the big thing that like caught my eye that I really felt just like, was like blew my mind that, that I was just like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen was drive like Jehu. And I saw them play, you know, many shows just locally. And so I started going to shows as, as, you know, in my sophomore year, basically. Um, and playing in bands in my freshman and sophomore year and just like playing shows and doing that whole thing. Um, but then that is also when coincidentally at the same time, it's bands like, you know, swing kids and, and the locust. And cause I was, the locust existed before me and, um, Kodadaka Tawi and heroin and Antioch Arrow and this whole like huge punk scene, um, you know, punk hardcore scene. Cause it wasn't punk. Like, you know, like your pop punk or maybe like the stuff that like Margaret Nee was like, you know, exposing or, or didn't think that, you know, got the, the, the exposure. Um, this was not like pop punk or like, you know, like Blink 182 or like any of that stuff. Um, I played shows with Blink 182 when they were Blink before they were big and stuff like that. And it was just all of that stuff. It's just, it, to me, it's just terrible. It's terrible. Like just, I don't know. It's pop punk. It's not, it's not the punk of like, you know, like uh, the Minutemen or like any of the like early bands uh, um, that, you know, were of I'm blanking on every single punk band that I love <laughs> right now, but it's like, it's a different thing, you know? And I felt like that at the same time, there was two big scenes happening in San Diego and it was the pop punk scene and this hardcore scene that just was like what I was, what I gravitated towards. Um, so then just kind of being a part of that and being so young and discovering bands like click attack seeing that kind of thing right in front of me small house shows the community 
the vulnerability, the um, political, you know, just being aware, um, politically aware, um, and, you know, being PC or, you know, PC and like instilling values of just like, you know, of, you know, kind of what I'm talking about, like what we were talking about earlier, of just like, you know, not discriminating, being aware of color, being aware of like, you know, of, of people's misfortunes and systemic problems and racism and, you know, privilege and all of those things. I felt like that was a community that I just exposed and just like blew my mind wide open and peeled off all of those layers and just like, that's how I learned um, those values that were instilled, you know, and like, I remember when I first, my very, very first tour, I was in this band called Garber One, um, and it was my spring break of senior year, and I toured out to, um, my parents actually let, you know, me and my other friend, who was my best friend in high school, and we were both in high school playing in this band, our parents let us, and on top of that, we had a 15-year-old drummer, and his parents let him take off for a week and drive across country in a van, you know, overcrowded van of eight people, no seatbelts, loft, you know, the most dangerous situation um, possible. Everybody, nobody probably over, you know, the age of 20, um, drove cross country and played this, you know, really kind of famous festival called the Michigan Fest, um, you know, that was a famous kind of hardcore scene um, festival. And that, that then exposed in all of the house shows that we played across the way, you know, to get out there and just finding all of these communities and all of these different cities that existed, that were all aligned, that were all like in the same kind of like, you know, just like context of and the same kind of mindset and just, um, you know, the exposure of that and, and knowing that those communities um, existed in, in all kinds of cities um, that, you know, was just like also very eye opening for me and just very like, you know, just exposed. I just felt like I have, I was, I was very fortunately exposed to a lot of different culture, a lot of different, you know, just a lot of things through, through my kind of young adult, um, teenage life. Um, and that of course, you know, obviously that's the hardcore side of things, but then I started, you know, to play softer music when I started Tristeza, um, and, you know, discovering, other bands and I met a lot of people on that first tour that were, you know, I met Christopher from Tristeza on that first tour. He ended up moving out to San Diego because we all made such a huge connection on that um, when we all met for the first time um, and came out and, you know, we started Tristeza together and we started discovering, you know, like Nick Drake and Red House Painters together and, and like, you know, all of these kinds of bands that were, um, kind of making this like intricate guitar music. And that's what led to Tristeza. And, you know, during that time also discovering like the Chicago music scene and Tortoise and, and, um, you know, Juno 44 and, uh, man, like, a, uh, I don't know, labels like Southern and Thrill Jockey and Touch and Go and, you know, stuff like that. So that kind of was like my exposure into, um, kind of just like, who I am now, you know, it's kind of how it happened. So it's pretty great. Oh man. I feel very fortunate. I oh, So my brain is like popping right now. I feel like I had, I feel like I had like a, maybe it was Michigan Fest. Like I, I feel like I had a Michigan Fest DVD. It was like Coles, yeah, yeah. small brown bike. Yeah. And, ah, okay. Cool, cool. Um, wow. So, okay. So I'm, I'm going to sort of, and first of all, thanks for sharing that. Like this is this is right up my alley. Um, <laughs> but 
and and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to swing kids in a second because I think there's uh, like I, I don't it, I'm fascinated by all this, but um, you know I I mean this with like a hundred percent respect, right? But you know at at 34 I, I can sit down with my father, right? Who who's who's in his 60s, and I can play the album leaf, like and and I don't that might sound disrespectful to like a punk kid that I don't mean it that way at all. Like not at all. No, not at all. My my dad loved this radio program. Uh, It might still be a program. It's called echoes and it it airs on Sunday nights and we used to play it and it would be, you know, I was like early twenties. Oh, echoes. Yeah. Yeah. Echoes. Oh shit. Yeah. You know what? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So John DeLiberto. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. So for people who don't know, like, you know, like Oliver Arnold's, like some spacey stuff, some post-rock stuff, some like, you know, right. like Native American type of music, really cool, largely instrumental stuff. So I could sit down with him and play the album Leaf, you know, while we're sitting by the fire, uh, sipping out a whiskey or something. And like, it's, it connects, but I can't play the locust, right? Like, so I, I guess maybe. Why not? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, did that. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but did that feel like an F you to music? Did that feel like, you know, we're going to do something that's like, we're going to leave some people standing there thinking what the hell is happening right now? So I guess, I don't know for, yes. I mean, we did, you know, so swing kids existed. Um, and I feel like swing kids were such a polished, um, band and their sound was was great. And um, as a as a fan, as, as someone who saw it, so I feel like there was like two camps. There was like there was like the the crazy chaotic like Antioch Arrow and heroin and like that and you know that kind of like stuff where you couldn't really tell what was happening. And my memory is like obviously you hear the records and you know the song and stuff, but like. I feel like live, it's like, what is happening? You can't, you don't know, you know, it's just like, sounds like it's just insane. And like, you can't, you know, so I felt like there was a little bit of that. And I felt like with Van Garber one was a little bit of that too. Like you couldn't really tell what was going on, but it was kind of there. I don't know. But at any rate, like when I saw swing kids, I was like, and going back on that, like the locusts, of course, you just like, you don't know what's happening. It's just like, what is happening? There's a little bit of, you know, and I think that's what that, when I, when I joined the band, they got fast. So before I joined the band, I felt like they were um, more like sludgy, more like death metal. Um, that was when, when um, uh, Dylan and uh, Dylan from Struggle and uh, Dave were were, um, were on dual vocals, and Dylan was like a screamy one, and Dave was like a kind of like a death metal voice one, and they were kind of more sludgy, and like they did that split. I think that first logo split was a split with. Uh, bastard noise or man is a bastard one one of those projects of of um, of man is a bastard eric wood and um, etc um but then i joined the band and i started and i played keyboards in the locust and then i felt like that, that brought some sense of like um you could then hear the melody that was going on you know you could hear the chords you could hear the things even though it was like insane screaming over the top of it i kind of felt like it made it like a little bit more um, uh, focused. Um, at any rate, like, and then we started the Crimson Curse and the Crimson Curse was definitely a band because we, we, we were straight edge, but we weren't, we didn't wear baggy pants and 
you know, chain of strength shirts and wore X. We didn't wear, wear X's on our. You you, know, you weren't Earth Crisis. Basically. You know, we were like, we were straight, straight edge, but it wasn't, you know, because of like, we were straight edge, we were vegan, we were you know all of these things, but it wasn't. It was just because like you know it wasn't like a true till death and like which still was just just cracks me up um, nowadays because. Fast forward 20 years and there was a reunion, Swinkins reunion, and all those straight edge guys were at the bar next door, just like, you know, throwing back tequila shots and, and, you know, with still their like true till death, like tattoos and stuff like that. It's just, just hilarious to me. Um, but also, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're all like, everybody makes choices when they're young and they don't really know how it's going to pan out. <laughs> um, but at any rate, like we started the Crimson Curse to be offensive, to be um, confrontational, to be, um, you know, uh, Irritate, irritating or just you know all of those things we did that that was our that was like that was why we played you know we played in silly costumes we played in like i played naked i mean we like we did all of these things that we just wanted to definitely like offend and just like you know just push those buttons of all of these uptight straight edge kids that were in our scene um and there was like fights and you know like threats and like you know we almost got jumped out of show in orange county um you know all kinds of these things and we were like the cool kids from san diego with like the spock rock haircuts and like you know called like with high water pants and just you know, we had this like really kind of just like i mean when looking back on it just very silly kind of style um <laughs> Um, but it was a thing, you know, and like, even when I went on that first tour, like I, I, I knew that like the San Diego scene was a known scene, um, you know, across the community, like, you know, it just like the, the style and, and stuff like that. Um, so there was a sense of, yeah, like we're punk, we have punk ethics, we have punk mentality. We don't give a fuck. We are gonna do what we want to do. And, and we don't care what you think. Um, yeah. You know, so there was that. Yeah. <laughs> what band, uh, just uh, because you brought, because you brought it up, what band did you play in that played with Blink? Uh, this was a band actually, um, this was a band called Steel Tree. Um, it was maybe my first, um, Maybe like my first, I don't know. I don't want to say my first real band, but it was basically um, coincidentally Gabe Serbian, who's the drummer for the Locust, um, you know, he's been the drummer for the Locust since early 2000s. Since actually right after I left is when he joined on guitar, but he and I were best friends in, um, in high school and he and I had bands together and he, this was a band together that we had together that played with uh, Blink-182. It was called Steel Tree. Um, oh, yeah, okay. it's called Steel Tree. It's terrible. <laughs> no need to, I don't think it exists anywhere. And uh, I think Gabe still has the, he told me he found the four track tape or like the four, the, the four, yeah, four song tapes that we put out. Um, we were very into like native nod and like Moss icon and, yeah. um, you know, like talky vocals. And like, I was like, a, I played bass in it and I was really a melodic bass player. Um, you know, I was really into like Joy Division and New Order, like and The Cure and all of that kind of stuff at this like during all of this time too. Um, so I don't know. I kind of liked a lot of a lot a lot a lot of music um, during the time, but it still fell under a specific umbrella. You know, I obviously wasn't into country or I wasn't into like um, pop punk or pop music. Um, you know, um, so I have a 
a, a long-winded sort of point and question about the swing kids, but I'll also sneak in here that, you know, and I'll leave this in, but at any point you want to cut me off, cut me off because, um, I'll just keep going and going like that. I'm really fascinated by all this, but, um, again, like subgenres are kind of weird. I, I maybe like the term political punk. There was a time when I was listening to music and, and people called it, you know, like screamo before that term sort of got co-opted by sort of these, I don't know, like right. pop type of uh, like my chemical romance, for example, or like, yeah, Boy. yeah, Screamo. yeah, exactly. Totally. But, just slaughters it. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I don't know what it is. It's punk. It's hardcore. Like that's the easiest way to do it. Um, but you know, I, I, I listen to bands in my teen years, like, like you and I, or, or the assistant. Um, and these are bands I think that largely drew influence from swing kids. And I think that right. swing kids in a way throws out the idea or throws in the garbage, the idea that like, you know, anyone that knows four chords can be in a punk band, right? And can anyone that can scream and, and know four chords can play punk music. Um, there was the obvious for people who don't know, like like jazzy element and influence to it. Um, and I know maybe you aren't a founding member, but like I don't I don't know what those types of shows were like. It, often in hindsight people look back on stuff like with, you know, reunions and things like that with a lot of fondness or even like you mentioned joy division, like joy division and black flag, you know, it didn't make money off of their bands back then. And now like shirts are sold in boutique stores because both of their sort of logos are part of like the, you know, cultural collective conscious. But, you know, again, like to a band like you and I, or, um, yeah, like bands from that era, like I think largely drew, influ- drew influence, as I stumble my words here, from Swing Kids. And like, yeah. I, I don't know if that felt to you like something different and, and groundbreaking. Did I feel like that? I mean, yeah. I, I felt like there was something really, really special about the San Diego scene, the San Diego hardcore scene. Um, and the bands that came with it. And I think that it was eclectic. And I think that there was a, 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 uni, like a, a unified sound, but, but, but so, but, but not, um, but not the same bands, you know, because I mean, you can take a band like through pilot, um, for example, um, you know, was like one of that band sounded, you know, so much different than say the swing kids. Um, and I just, I don't know, like Boilermaker and, um, there's just kind of, uh, there were so many bands during that time period. Um, and such, such a cool scene. Click Italic Itali like really stands out to me too. Um, uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of, a lot of a, like a unified collective of bands and everybody was friends. Um, you know, sure. There was like, there's inner, you know, inner things here and there with different people or, or whatnot or, um, but it felt because I wasn't in the swing kids to begin with. Um, I have that same kind of look, view of swing kids. You know, I now like I, I've, you know, I've, I played the last four shows 
um, with the Swing Kids as second guitar. And then after Eric passed and we did a reunion in um, 2012, or when was that? I can't remember when exactly that first reunion was, but it was a, um, it was Unbroken, Festival of Dead Deer, uh, Swing Kids, uh, you know, it was like this whole thing. Um, can't, can't remember what it was. It, they, they named it something, I don't know, just like in typical kind of hardcore fashion, it was named some kind of festival. It was in LA and, you know, that was the one I was talking about where everybody was next door, you know, who used to be straight edge was next door at the bar shooting shots and stuff like that. But at any rate, um, it felt special to me to be a part of that. I still feel like I'm, I'm playing in that band as a fan, you know, even though like they're all my peers and they're all friends and, and I've known me these everybody for you know 25 plus years. Um, there's still people that I'm like a fan of and fan of what they've done musically and, and the, or the fan of the band itself. Um, and I still hold that kind of on that pedestal, um, in a way. Um, and Swing Kids was definitely one of those. Cause I felt like it was just, I don't know, something about it was just like utterly cool when I first saw it. And it's like I said, like the sound, it was so polished, it was aggressive and it was, it was, you know, heavy, but also like clean and just like, I don't know. It was, there was something about it that was just basically was, it's tough to, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like how you say, like you weren't a part of those shows and a part of that, that kind of movement, but I, but I'm sure that like you had your own scene during your own time period that was, you know, similar, even though like, I like to say, I, I think like there was, no time like that time and nobody's ever going to experience a time like that, but that's not true. That's just my own personal experience. You know, it's my own, you know, experience. Cause I feel like there's, you know, there's underground scenes of music everywhere and there's house shows happening and it's just in a different way. But I mean, sure. It's different these days with like the internet and the exposure of just like SoundCloud and home studios and the ability to make your own music and record your own records and have it on the world, you know, have it out in the world within an hour, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And that did not exist whatsoever back in the, back in the quote unquote, back in the day, you know, um, it was about like going in, like scrapping together the cash to go into a studio to record or utilizing a four track or whatever it was and then getting it pressed. And then, you know, there was all these independent labels that just would go out on a limb for you and like press up your vinyl. And, and, you know, it was, you had to discover, you had to seek it, you had to find it. Um, and there's something very special about that. So I just feel like, and also just like you said, like Screamo has been co-opted now. It's not, it's not, you know, what it meant to us when we first discovered it or even emo or even, um, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, also, or, 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 or punk. I don't know. I mean, there's like so many subgenres, as you said, and, um, yeah, it's a shame to, it's, it's, it's really breaks my heart that, you know, fallout boy or my chemical romance or any of those kinds of things have been deemed screamo. And that's like what screamo represented because that's not, <laughs> you know, that's like, to me has nothing to do with the like absolute like original like movement that was the screamo movement of the nineties, um, you know, of the underground hardcore scene of, you know, I feel like that was just, it was invented. It was a new culture, a new, a new like sound. It was a definitely a new sound and just standing have a lot to do with that. Yes. Um, 
and San Diego was, you know, a little bit uh, different than the rest, you know, because you are talking about bands like Coalesque and stuff like that. And Coalesque was more kind of sludgy and more, um, you know, even like, um, I mean, there's all kinds of those things. Like there's Coalesque, there's uh, kind of what's on totally, I see the patch. Like I totally see the patch and I can't remember the name of it, um, but I see the patch and I, you know, I see the patch on my own jacket. I can't, you know, but there was all of these bands at the, at the, at existed at the same time that were, you know, under the screamo umbrella, but they were more sludgy. They were more kind of death metal influenced or more metal influenced. Um, you know, it wasn't just like, or even punk influenced, but it was a different sound. It was just San Diego just had a different sound, I think. Um, and I do feel very fortunate and special that I had, you know, I have a foot in, you know, in that history that I was a part of that um, musically and creatively. Yeah. And wow, <laughs> there's a lot in there that I love. Um, but I think one, one of your last points, you know, I'm, I'm recording tomorrow morning with uh, a gentleman named Tony Patino who put out a documentary about the Tampa Bay, Florida punk scene. And to me, like, you know, as a kid from New York, I grew up on Long Island. I've spent my adult life in the city. You know, that's what I know, like the, the music scene here. And like you were talking about having it feel special. Like I, I would go to these types of shows at ABC No Rio, like these tiny little hole right. in the wall places. And it did feel like, wow, this is a place I belong. This is, this is so special to me. Um, but yeah. like, I don't know. And, and not to be disrespectful to it, but I don't know, like who knows about Tampa. Um, and so yeah. to me, I'm very fearful of that stuff disappearing. Um, so that's why like, I'm, I, I love that I get to do that, com have that conversation with him tomorrow in my own very small way to at least like, <laughs> I don't know when the meteor hits and maybe the grid goes out or whatever, like people have yeah. this, have this saved somewhere and it's like, I don't know, like culture for the future. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's also why I'm this, I'm like, um, co coincidentally, um, I don't know that it's the same scene, but Sam, um, Sam Fogarino from Inter Interpol, um, who I also played, had a band with for a short time, um, grew up in South Florida and was a part of the hardcore scene in South Florida. Oh, cool. Um, wow. I didn't know that. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are things that it like kind of like spurts, you know, spurred out of there. Um, you know, people that went on to form bands like, you know, or play in bands like Marilyn Manson and stuff like that. I'm not sure if it's the same scene, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it's all, it, everything is, everything is, is, you know, everything is special to that, to, to, to what you, um, kind of grew up in. And, and I do feel fortunate that I feel like I can, you know, had some kind of reach and that our scene kind of had some kind of reach. Like I, yeah, me too. I don't know about a single hardcore band from mm. Tampa Bay. <laughs> um, but who knows? We might be surprised. We might, you know, there might be feel like, Oh yeah, they're from that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hot water music, like that whole movement, stuff like that, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess I'll, so maybe I'll explain my relationship to the album Leafs music. Um, I think as I got older, I don't want to say my, my, my interests matured because like I still, to this day, I'll put on albums from bands I listened to when I was 14, but I'll say it, it may be expanded. Um, and in the summertime living on Long Island or, or I went to college on Long Island, my friends and I would drive out to, to Montauk 
And I had, you know, oh. like a, at the time, like a click wheel type of iPod. And I had a shitty old car where I could like connect a tape via via oh. he- headphone jack to the yeah. iPod and play that. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's how I grew up. So okay, yeah. <laughs> 40, 42, so All right. <laughs> that's my era. <laughs> um, but like you mentioned uh, Tristeza and, and you know, I, I had certain songs I would always keep on loop. And what we would do is we would go out there and, you know, swim all day. At the time, you could make a fire on the beach and like even have a couple beers on the beach. And, you know, the cops would just come by and be like, make sure you put your fire out. Like they wouldn't mess with you. Um, right. And then at night I'd drive home. And everyone would pass out in the car and it, maybe it sounds so cheesy, but like I would feel this like sense of responsibility for everyone, like to get everyone home safe. And I would play music and again, in, in a quite a cheesy way maybe, but in a way I look back at with like such a romantic sense, like it was almost like my soundtrack. Like I know you, you do soundtracks and it was almost like the soundtrack to the movie of my life. It, it would take about an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minutes to get home from Montauk. And I'd have these songs right. playing and I would have, um, you know, like Malmo or Vermilion, and, and I'd have stuff from Tristezza and like this would be the soundtrack taking me home. And, you know, so I look back at that quite fondly and, you know, I just, I wonder, and like, I've, I've wondered this and I'm glad I get to talk to you. You know, you, you go from, from punk and hardcore to where for a lot of bands, like the audience is sort of part of it. Um, and so I'll think of a band like, like American Nightmare, right? Like, I, I think they've done like some reunion type of tours and released a new record somewhat recently. But I've seen them play a few times over the years and like maybe 30% of the vocals are actually like sung into the microphone because kids are just going nuts. And is, is, is Wes still in American Nightmare? Yes. Is he still? He, oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the sound has certainly evolved since like background music or, you know, the EPs. Right. But, um, you know, I bring them up to say like he's getting mobbed on stage and like half, half the, more than half the time the mic is just like pointed at the crowd and kids are just going like apeshit. Um, right. So I guess I sort of have like two questions in that transition period. Like maybe, maybe the first being, you know, going from like this really sort of abrasive sound to something that's much softer and, and sweet. Like does the music scratch the same itch? And then I wonder like without having the crowd as really part of it, right? Because people are going to be into it, but no one's, you know, stage diving to – you know, like in a yeah. safe place, right? Like, um, like sort of if, if that's something like you're conscious of sort of that relationship to the crowd, um, and you playing music, if that, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, you know, cause I get asked, obviously I get asked this a lot for anybody who knows that I was in, in, you know, my hardcore history. Um, and just actually, I, I just did a tour in Europe um, in the fall um, and played a show in, what city was that? It was in Switzerland. Um, anyways, it was in Switzerland and there was a, the, um, our, our, our tour manager, uh, um, his friend came out and she was a fan of the Locust. And, um, yeah, and when when he introduced me to her, he's like, "Oh, so you were?" She's like, "You're the locust, and now this, like, what, what, what the hell?" 
And like, I mean, so it still happens to me. I still get asked about it. Um, and to me, I don't know. I, I, you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, that your taste evolved um, or that you're, you matured or something like that. Or you said matured first. Um, and I kind of feel the same way um, in, a, in a way. And that's not to say or put anything else down, but I feel like there came a point where like me musically, um, I just kind of like, you know, I was playing shows, touring the, touring the world. Like I went to Europe for the first time um, with the Locust in 1990, this uh, winter of 1997, you know, not even just six months after I graduated high school, you know, then here I am like, you know, touring through Europe. Um, and meet and, and again, expanding and meeting communities that are the same people in Europe, you know, like the same kind of like, like-mindedness and, and, you know, playing shows with like refuse back in the day and, 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 um, wow. meeting those guys and seeing that, seeing that they dress like us too, <laughs> that they were totally influenced by our scene. Um, stuff like that, you know, it's just kind of, um, a really cool thing. And so that was all very just like, exciting and eye-opening and um just exciting really you know and I was like this young kid and I'm playing shows and I'm jumping off bass drums and throwing myself into the crowd and like you know completely shredding my finger every night um you know or stage diving um I remember playing the show the show in Umeo um with it was final exit which which, which was a refused side project um and it was Dennis and David um, that were in Final Exit. And um, just uh, like during their show, like stage diving and like having a fun, just like this whole thing, you know, and that's like obviously like that scene and just seeing like that stuff everywhere. So it was all very exciting. But at the same time, you know, I really like appreciated and was a music lover and, you know, just really like started to discover things that kind of just resonated with me more and, and spoke and felt more honest to me, honest to what I was, wanting to do musically. So in a way that like, you know, people may ask me like, Oh, well, why were you in the hardcore? Like, and then now you do this and you make this, this kind of music. And my short answer is always like, well, I grew up, um, you know, and that's, again, I feel like that's kind of, that's not fair to the people that are, that are, you know, in those bands and in that scene and love that music. Um, and it's fair to me, but I mean, it's not putting them down, but I feel like that's just not a very fair way to put it is that I grew up. Um, but I just felt like I just started to make music that I connected with and felt more true and honest to myself. Um, you know, and that's kind of where it rang true. Um, and as far as like the live connection and thing like that, um, it didn't, it didn't feel honest to myself. Um, like I didn't feel like it was truly me when I was like throwing myself all over the place and, and playing in this crowd. Like I kind of felt like I was playing a role and you know, we're playing a character in a sense, um, you know, during that time, like it didn't just feel like, you know, I felt like I was faking it if I stage dive, you know, like it just wasn't something that like, you know, I'd look at other people and see them do it and be like, wow, that's so cool or whatever. But it didn't feel, it just it didn't feel authentic to who I actually was. Um, and I mean, I guess the opposite is what's happening now is like me on stage and, you know, not really being very personable. Um, 
I'm not a very good stage talker. I'm, I'm obviously like one-on-one, as you can tell, I can, I, I, I will talk <laughs> and I have a lot to say and I'm, you know, a personable person, but, um, but on stage, yeah, I'm like, I'm still just like not totally comfortable speaking a thousand percent comfortable playing music, performing music and all things that have to do with it. But when it comes to some time to like say something in the microphone or, you know, it just doesn't, it's just, doesn't come natural to me. Um, so it's just a different sense um, that I kind of feel from both of those worlds. Um, but it does scratch my itch to, you know, just perform and get the feedback of people that are appreciative. And, you know, I may not say anything on stage, but I often always, you know, make my way out to the crowd after a show and try to talk to as many people as I can, because that is what's more comfortable to me. And that's, you know, Obviously, you know, it's also just like strokes your ego a bit to like know that people appreciate you and like what you're doing and you have a purpose and they, you know, something that I create on my own in my bedroom or in my studio at a house and, and, you know, just an isolated way like is appreciated by people. Um, And that feels really good. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the the body of work that you've done. It, it even like sort of, I don't know if this makes sense to say, it, it sort of transcends music. Like you've done soundtracks, you've done audio for like major, I think this is fair to say, right? Like major like multinational corporations. Um, you know, but you, I, I also think this is correct. Like you were giving out or not giving out, but like selling album leaf tapes, right? Like when you were touring with Tristeza, like, at any yeah. at any point, did this yeah. seem like a career or something that was even impossible? Yeah, sorry, it, it kind of broke up. Oh, sorry. I just like I'm thinking, yeah. did did it, or maybe even like, what was the point that it dawned on you? Like, hey, I might never have to work and or. You know, it, and and not to diminish the amount of work that goes into what you're doing, and sort of like the time away from home. No, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. But yeah, but like when I didn't have a quote unquote a day job, like when I realized that transition. Yeah, like when you didn't when yeah when you realized you weren't going to be a normal person, I guess. <laughs> um. So I mean, a couple of things kind of came into play with that. Um. There's there's uh, you know, back back. Back when I first started, and and I feel very fortunate because of this situation. Um, but back when I first started in the like the, the late nineties, um, mid mid to late nineties, touring, um, you know, my rent was eighty five dollars a month, and I had a gigantic four hundred square foot bedroom in an old Victorian house in downtown San Diego. You know, um, so there's you know one thing right there. Um, that's not much money to bring in a month. Uh, there was also like all kinds of like little scams here and there that you could do because this was pre cell phone. And we had these little devices called dialers, which would basically trick the payphone into thinking it was receiving money. So you could call people internationally and nationally to book tours. Um, so there was another, like there, there's all these little just things, you know, um, staying with people in different communities across the place. So you weren't sleeping, you were young, so you're not sleeping in hotel rooms. You're, you know, you're sleeping on floors or in the van. Um, so th- at that point, like I was a lot, like just, we lived on tour, you know, we would always be on tour. Um, Tristeza. And, um, and then I got back and 
I moved out on my own. So I had to pay a little bit more rent. And I started just like doing a lot of work. I had like four jobs at one point where I was a delivery service, uh, uh, delivered food um, at night, also mixed sound at a local venue called the Casbah um, at night, you know, on other nights. And then these were all also like self, it was kind of like the pre, it was like a gig economy in a way where like pre Uber and Postmates and all that kind of stuff, obviously, but where you could just sign yourself up to work, um, you know, so I could strategically, you know, work whatever three nights, four nights at the delivery place and whatever three nights, four nights at Casbah. Um, and it not overlap because I was making my own schedule. Um, but I was also working on the weekends at a breakfast place as a barista um, in the mornings on the weekends. And then also during the week, I was like working for this higher Christian company making granola bars. <laughs> um, wow. So I had like all of these jobs and I was always working. I was doing all this stuff to like save up all this money and like then be able to just like go out on tour and make no money and just like live on tour, but like have everything paid for. You'd sublet your place when you left and, um, also gas was like, in the South gas was like 60 cents a gallon. It was insane when we get down there, you know, but for us in San Diego, it's like a dollar something, you know? Um, so all that stuff kind of like existed, which made me really easy for me to hustle and just be on tour and like, you know, just be out in the world and be, you know, because this was pre-internet, nobody knew about, um, I mean, the internet was there, but it wasn't the same kind of accessibility. Um, you still had to be out, you still had to be touring, you still had to like be in front of people to play, to be recognized or known or, or, you know, um, but really I kind of like gave up everything and took a chance to just start touring all the time, um, during those jobs. And so when I came back, there was one time I just didn't go back. Um, and then it was right before in a safe place came out, um, and I had, was that when it was? No, it was before that. I feel like one day I'll be on time era. Um, no, I was still working. Through, sorry, I'm just starting to put the, put the dots together. At, at any rate, like in a safe place was really the, the changer, the game change for me because I had signed to Sub Pop. You know, that was still back in the day when you'd get it some, you know, some one of a substantial advance for signing. Um, you know, all of which you obviously have to pay back, but I think it still exists today, but um, it just kind of, and then I had a lot of success with licensing all of a sudden, like, you know, that was back in the day, like those real world and road rules and all of the MTV shows were using my music. And I all of a sudden received a publishing check for $5,000. And I was just like, what? This is crazy. You know, I was just like, wow, this is incredible. And that was like a weird changing moment for me. Like first, like really big publishing check that I received. And I was just, and it was just did so much to my, my personal, you know, low overhead expense life, you know? And then from then on out, it just kind of like kept coming. I kept getting good license placement um, in a safe place. Like almost every single song on that record was used on that TV show, The OC. Um, I was just getting a lot of licensing and then also making money from touring. And the touring kind of turned a little bit more professional, less kind of DIY. Um, and yeah, it's just been going <laughs> ever since. Wow. <laughs> That's still happening. And um, yeah, I mean, I never don't realize how fortunate I am to have those kind of parts and pieces in place that I'm still making a living um, just creating music. 
Wow. And I do want to reference, um, you know, prior to talking to you, I had pulled up an article in the, the website is called self-titled mag. Um, oh yeah. 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 And you had done like a full retrospective on the bands you've played in. So I did want to reference that just so that people can go check that oh, out. Oh, right. That was kind of somewhat recent. Yeah, right. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm talking more through the relationship of the bands I listen to, like full disclosure. Like I, I didn't really listen to Crimson Curse. Um, yeah. Not because I didn't like it, just because I wasn't really exposed to it. So um, I want to make sure people are able to check that out. But is, that's one reason I love podcasts is you can sort of expand upon what some of the short interviews can't do. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I, I've, I've thought about this for a while with bands that are primarily instrumental, like whether you want to call it ambient or post-rock again, whatever. Um, but to me, like, I think the connection people people have to music, right? Like there's... There's the sonic connection. There's like the, this makes me want to dance or this makes me want to stage dive or this makes me want to whatever from, from pop on down to hardcore. Um, but I think the connection most people have is, is to lyrics. It's something that they can relate to. It makes them think of a moment in time. It's something they can sing. Um, yeah, is it, is it much harder to elicit a feeling? And obviously, like, through the evolution of the album leaf, some of it, it has vocals, but some of it doesn't, or a large portion of the body of work doesn't. Um, it's again, maybe it's a connection to the audience thing. And it's funny, like, I know I'm jumping around and this tangent's wild, but like, you had a video of uh, Chengdu, right? And like, people just like flipping out. Um, like, they're so excited right. to see the music. And I just wonder if, if, if the music elicits a feeling for you and a memory, um, and if you're like striving to do that out of your audience or not, if that's a large muddled um, thing there, but I feel like it does. It absolutely, um, you know, has, uh, brings up feelings for me, brings up memories for me, brings up time periods, brings up, um, all of those things. Um, and I feel like those are personal to me and they're not necessarily what a song is about. Cause also I like, I, I have always kind of struggled with the notion that I'm supposed to have a story behind every song. I'm supposed to have a source of inspiration. I'm supposed to have a source of emotion that it came from, you know, I feel mm. like that again is not authentic to me. Like I'm just not. I just don't, you know, and I do, but it's not like a conscious thing. Um, I get mostly caught up in the, in the song itself that I'm creating when I'm creating it. Um, it doesn't necessarily like mean I'm going to write a song about X, Y, Z, you know, I've never been like that. Um, it's always just been about creating music. Uh, you know, I hear people, I don't know, it just drives me insane. Like just, I, cause it just, I guess because it's not so, because it's not how I view it. I call bullshit whenever people, other people like talk about things like that. For mm. And I know that that's not fair. And I know that it's untrue, but there's like some really wacky people that like, you know, or musicians that have some really wacky stories about how they came to create whatever they came to create. I definitely don't have that. <laughs> I just make music because I love it and because it's natural to me and it's what I create. Um, at any rate, um, as far as the listener and how they react to it, I feel like the beauty um, of instrumental music is that you're not being told 
anything. It is absolutely up to you to relate to it however you like um, and however it makes you feel. Um, however, you know, songs, my songs that do have lyrics um, resonate with people in a very specific way. Um, and that right there tells me, kind of, kind of proves that point of like, it'll resonate with someone in a very specific way because there's lyrics and there's, this, there's something being said. And that's important. I mean, to just fans of music, that is what you, that's what, that's what, that's what music is there for is to connect to it, you know, and to help you through this or help you through that or, mm. or, you know, make you feel a certain way or, um, I don't know, get you excited or, you know, all of those things. Um, it speaks to your core really, you know? And, um, so it's interesting that like a song, like always for you is, uh, you know, is somebody's wedding song or something like that. Yeah. And also at the same time, 2214 is also somebody's wedding song, you know, or somebody's, you know, song as a couple or, you know, I don't know, stuff like that. You know, they, there's like a very like romantic memory tied to songs of mine. Um, and also opposite, you know, so I feel like that's, kind of a cool, I don't know, it's kind of, kind of a cool thing, I guess. Yeah, and maybe maybe to to that point somewhere in there, um, you know, I was wondering this, so I, I had seen a really sort of uh, a tender moment maybe, like there's a, a company, I guess, called Output, and they have yeah. a YouTube channel called Output, and you did uh, like seven minutes sort of talk on, on making music and sort of the tech behind it. And you used a, a voice sample from your son to make a, a synth sound, uh, and that was that was really cool just to see. Like I, I you know, you could hear that that sound and, and never even know it was your son. But I wonder, from seeing that, I'm thinking, is there does your music brain ever turn off? Like, is, is that always going? Are you always sort of almost like a sound designer for a movie who needs to you know make like a garbage can hitting the garbage type of sound where they're actually recording yeah. in a studio. It's not actually no, it filmed. It doesn't turn off. It's always. It's wow. Always. <laughs> it absolutely never turns off. When you do like soundtracks then, um, are you, you know, are you, are you watching the film first or are you coming to the table already with an idea? Is it all based around the film of, uh, or the feel of the film? Um, it is kind of all of the above. Um, wow. there's like my wife is a filmmaker. Um, so with her films, like I know what she's, um, I know what the film is going to be about. I'm mm. the early footage, but I'm not necessarily scoring a scene. Um, so I kind of go into it with a, like a tone in mind and like a, 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 a subject matter, you know, knowing that, knowing that this film is going to be about four women, you know, different stories. They're all, they're all mothers and they're all incredible artists and they all um, are also challenged by the, you know, the um, stereotypes of being a woman and being a mother and, you know, things like that, you know, for example. Um, and I kind of like, you know, then you want to like create some kind of music bed that like, you know, music palette that can kind of, uh, lend itself to that and without being too heavy or without being too sad or without being too this or, you know, all of those things. Um, and 
with that particular example, uh, I create a bunch of music. I hand it over to her and her team and they start to edit with it and they start to use my music as temp. And then, you know, those things kind of fall into place and this starts to really work with that scene. And then I will then get it back and then start to work to picture and to story and to create and go off of those original, really simple demos and create like a big, you know, kind of thing. That film I'm talking about was called artist and mother, which is uh, just came out a couple weeks ago, only on Bandcamp, but it will be out very soon everywhere else. Um, but, um, but yeah, so there's that. And then there's others where I get it. I get the film after shooting's already been done and the story's in place. And it's basically, you know, kind of a fine cut. And fine cut isn't a final cut, but fine cut is kind of like, you know, everything's basically there. They might shave off a couple seconds of this, that, or whatever scene, um, but it's pretty much there. So I am scoring two picture and I am scoring to, you know, the story and the mood and the dialogue and the, the setting and the scene and, and, um, so it's kind of a lot of, uh, and I prefer either really, you know? Yeah. Um, no matter what, I'm still like, my scoring style is always to score to picture, like hitting cuts and hitting, you know, moments and, you know, cause there's also a lot of people, you know, like, um, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have, you know, there's a handful of people who have just changed the scoring landscape and scoring game. Um, but you know, them, for example, they just create a bunch of music and they don't cut two scenes. Mm. I know that that's happened before, um, where they just kind of create a bunch of music and they hand it over. And then the, the, you know, that, you know, a bunch of kind of, um, composers do that as well. Um, I prefer to just cut two scenes and cut two points and cut to picture and, you know, all of that stuff. You know, uh, you've been incredibly gracious with your time. So I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it with this next one, Jimmy, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I'm not an artist. I, you know, primarily work in education, but I've been really fortunate, you know, like I have been with this episode to be able to sit down with people that I'm just like, just supremely interested in and sort of the the pinnacle of what that would be for me, maybe like if you want to say like bucket list type of thing, uh, would have been Anthony Bourdain and, and he passed. And right. like, I literally had <laughs> like sheets of questions I, I wrote out. Um, and I touched on the fringes of our two social circles overlapping and was thinking like, Oh, this will happen one day. And then he's gone. And, and that's the only yeah. time I've ever, I don't know, been like really upset about someone passing that had like a sort of like celebrity type of a stand. But, um, this is a long winded way of saying like, uh, I'm quite fortunate to be able to sit down and, and talk with people that if I didn't have a podcast, I, ne I never would have been, I just would have been a, like a, like a, like a fan, I guess. Um, you know, I'd, I'd imagine you're also a fan of music and I had seen somewhere in preparing for this, that, uh, like red house painters was a band that, was of interest to you at the very least, like a band you listened to, a band that influenced you. And then, you know, I don't necessarily believe in like manifestation or anything like that, but like at, at some point you then come to be recording with, you know, if people don't know, like Mark, the their singer who has like a very <laughs> unique lyrical style and like vocal delivery also. 
Um, yeah, which actually that 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 started on the record that we did together. By the way, like before that, he was very much more of a kind of a soaring vocalist, um, and then that record kind of started his kind of talk delivery. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I don't have really like a very um, I don't know, like a really deep question here, but I just like I wonder what that feels like to you. Does that feel surreal? Does it feel normal at this point? Did does it something? Is it something that like geeks you out? Um, you know, it's all relative really because it somewhat feels, um, you know, there's a lot behind that, um, that collaboration too, by the way, just as far as like kind of how things played out and it was actually pretty disappointing, um, because of working with someone who I respected and kind of was a hero of mine and, and shaped a lot of my, you know, early kind of, uh, you know, writing and, and guitar approach, really like the whole reason why I play in alternate tunings, um, and still play in alternate tunings was because of he and Nick Drake. Um, that was what, you know, sent Christopher and I down the alternate tuning path in Tristeza and continued on to my own guitar playing. Um, so that was kind of, you know, so early, early on when I was in Tristeza, we played a show at some basement, some place in, you know, North Beach in San Francisco. Um, and Mark Kozlik came and, um, back in like probably 2000 or 99 or even 90, no, it was earlier. It's probably 97, 98. Um, at any rate, like he came and I think I had just put out an orchestrated rise to fall. So that would have been 99. Um, and at the merch table, like he, he was there and I just like picked up every single thing that I had on the merch table, a stack of CDs. And I gave it to him and I said, you know, Hey man, you're like, you're a huge inspiration to me and you've inspired all of this music. So I just feel like you should have it. Um, you know, great to meet you. Well, yada, yada, yada. He was cool and he was fine. He was nice. And he was like, Oh, thanks man. You know, his, his kind of, his voice and demeanor is still like, you know, Oh, cool, man. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, just like he is and, you know, almost famous. Um, that's who he is in real life. But anyways, um, <laughs> uh, you know, cut fast forward to um, actually, coincidentally, the band that I played in Sam uh, with Sam, the, the, the band that I played in with Sam um, Fogarino from Interpol. Um, we, Sam and, uh, 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 another uh, friend, his name is Adam Franklin, who was in a band called Swerve Driver, still in a band called Swerve Driver. They stayed, they made a record together and then recruited, you know, three more people that kind of helped them play the record and play the show. And then we made a record together as well. Um, and so the guy who was playing bass in that band was Mark's tour manager. Um, so when we went through San Francisco again, um, Mark came out to the show and then so I met him again and was able to kind of tell the story of like this and he's like oh cool man and by that time he was familiar with album leaf he'd heard of of it and you know kind of like went from a you know not knowing each other to an acquaintance um and then I moved to Santa Cruz or uh, during that time I lived in Santa Cruz so I only lived about, about an hour you know Santa Cruz is about an hour and a half from um hour to an hour and a half from San Francisco and he was dating a he was dating someone in Santa Cruz, so he kind of like came down to Santa Cruz a lot. Um, and then yeah, like then he called me up just 
out of the blue and was like, Hey, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I was thinking about making a song together. What would you think about making a song together? Just one. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah, man, that'd be incredible. Um, let's do it. And by that time I had moved to LA. Um, and, uh, so then I made that first song on that record, what happened to my brother. And I basically sent it to like the music that you hear is what I sent him and that he sang over it. So musically, um, that's why I sent him. And then he came back and said, that was cool. Like, it was really great. Let's make another song. And then it's the next song in that record. And then that basically turned into, let's make a whole record. Um, so I don't know. I mean, long story short, like people are, it sounds so silly, but people are people, you know, like I'm sure there's people that hold me in some kind of regard or some kind of pedestal or like look up to me in a certain way. But like when it comes down to, I'm just a, a, a guy who's just made music, released music, um, who's had some fortunate, you know, success. Um, but when it comes down to it, I'm, you know, a wife and kids and it's my daily life and I'm just a normal person. And granted, there are a lot of people in the music industry that are not very nice people. <laughs> a lot of people in famous bands that are not very nice people and they're not as approachable or not as down to earth. Um, and do have some kind of ego and, and things like that. I mean, I, you know, everybody has ego, but, um, it's just a matter of how you carry yourself. But I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to like meet so many bands that were my peers or that I looked up to like American analog said I was really, really into in like 1999. And then we all like ended up signed to this new label that had just started. So we became this family and then like I met all of them and now we're all like, you know, great friends still. And, you know, stuff like that. It's like people get broken down and, um, you know, a band called Telephone Tel Aviv, which was like, you know, an electronic band that just, that record just blew my mind when it first came out. And just, and I think that, that and the No Twist um, are bands that, records that just changed my approach to making music, you know, changed into that. See, like I said, Seal Beach was like a big change for me because that was when I kind of went, started going down the electronic path. Um, and that was, you know, solely influenced basically by, you know, the no twist and telephone television. And since Josh is, you know, a really, really great friend of mine, he's been a great friend of mine, helped me make a record is mixing my current records. Um, you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, it just comes down to a point where like everybody is, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky to kind of like make friendships and with people that are just cool. <laughs> Um, and like yeah. I said, I mean, that doesn't, that's not everybody is cool. I mean, yeah, that, that does need to be, you know, who knows if Madonna is just like a totally normal person. She's probably not, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why I used her as an example, but I did, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I understand the point. Um, listen, uh, so I'll wrap this. I'll, I'll ask that once I hit pause on record, you stay on for just a brief second, but yeah. you know, uh, again, like I'm just some dude uh, with a microphone who's very fortunate to have been able to like, travel around the world and talk to all sorts of interesting people. And these music episodes, you know, unless I'm looking at it like, hey, this is this band from Indonesia, which has like some, you know, like a cultural lens to it. Uh, if it does, if it's not that, it's something that in a lot of ways is quite selfish for me. Uh, because again, I get, right. to, I get to talk to people who I'm very interested in. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm eternally grateful for, for you giving me two hours of your time and for sitting down. And I, I love, 
even the stuff I wasn't a part of, I, I don't know what it is. There's something about it that's very romantic to me. I love hearing about old shows, hearing about like, especially like New York City and, and bands on tour and stuff like that. So it's, it's of like supreme interest to me and I find it really, really cool. So, um, Jimmy, I just yeah. want to, I want to say thank you to you, uh, you know, for, for giving me your, your time today. Yeah. That, 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 thanks for having me. It's always great <laughs> to talk, to chat. That is a wrap on episode number 167 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so, so much to Jimmy. This was really, really cool for me. And thank you, obviously, to all of you Voyagers out there tuning in. Whether it's the first time you're tuning in or you've listened to all 167 episodes, I appreciate you. This is really cool that I get to do this and, and put out these cool stories into the, into the ether, into the universe. I'm going to play you out with another song of Jimmy's, a band that was mentioned a few times in this episode. It was Tristeza. And, you know, I mentioned driving out to Montauk, listening to music. One of the songs that was always, always on my playlist was a song called Building Peaks by Tristeza. And you're going to hear that now on your way out of this podcast. So I'll say again, thank you to all of you. And as always, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon and enjoy this song. Bye-bye.